This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Cognitgo, Ergo, whoops. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that messes up the difference between inference and deduction. My name is Gepwind, I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we've got there the one episode of season two that everyone remembers Mm -hmm. and everyone agrees was good. Yes. (laughs) Because it sets up some stuff for later. I mean, the episode itself is still pretty good. It's a little thin on the ground once you get into it. But, you know, it sets up a really, really good episode in, like, five years. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I do honestly like both of them. And uh, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a treat. <laughs> and as of this recording, this, this is not going to come out for a minute. I have no idea what's happening in the future. But as of us recording this, we still have no idea what happens with this guy's new guest appearance on Star Trek Picard, other than it was in the trailer. Yes. <laughs> so. So uh, we'll see how that rolls. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm still a little bit ticked that he didn't turn out to be Raffi's handler. Hmm. That's true. You know, this, uh, it would have been a, a great sort of reveal, like, oh, yeah, your handler is this hologram. And you're like, what? And she'd yeah, be like, like what, what's going on? What? How is... I don't, and then she falls over, you know. Yeah, like one of the Federation, like, black ops, whatever intelligence team has found this guy. It's like, this is the most intelligent criminal who's ever lived, and we have him, you know, captured as a hologram. Indeed. So, you know. Uh, Who better can... to run our counterintelligence agency? It's like, uh, are you okay with nefarious things? Uh, sure, as long as I get to, like, exist. Like, oh, all right, we'll uh, give you a job and we'll let you exist. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Why not? Just, it, it makes them, it, it made more sense to me, but no, of course, they had to bring Worf in somehow. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, we're doing Elementary My Dear Data with uh, the first appearance, the first of two, possibly three at some point, appearances of the Star Trek version of Moriarty. Mm-hmm. Professor James Moriarty, master criminal who, you know, is like this guy and uh, kind of uh, famous for being a uh, Holmes, a Sherlock Holmes arch nemesis sort of figure. Yeah, who, um, as far like as far as I remember, appeared in at like I think one, maybe two stories. <laughs> yeah, but uh, was uh, I guess made enough of an impact that was the one that everyone actually remembers. Yeah, because he was in the Reichenbach Falls thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because he t- he and and Holmes took each other out. It was this whole like it was the only way for Holmes to defeat him was to die yep. because <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was really really sick of writing Sherlock Holmes stories. <laughs> it's like I need to you know need to stop doing this, so I'll just kill him off, and but I'll do it in an epic way, so it all works yeah. right. And then it sparked a massive amount of outrage and. <laughs> created what is arguably the world's first retcon yep <laughs> he didn't really die <laughs> no uh i have heard a, a few folks uh you know suggest that maybe the holmes that came back from all that was actually just moriarty dun, dun, dun. except that in the actual 
books and story, they look nothing alike. Indeed. Not so, even you know, a little bit. So it wouldn't make any sense, but, you know, yeah. people like to this come is up a, this This, this <laughs> hot Moriarty is an invention of all other adaptations. I've never seen a screen adaptation of Moriarty that looks anything like Moriarty <laughs> as described in the book. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm not a stickler for that sort of thing. I just think it's funny. <laughs> The only uh, time that I've ever seen a, a adaptation of Moriarty in visual format that looked anything the way he's described is in the original League of Extraordinary Gentlemen graphic novel. Hmm. So I guess uh, if you want a good example of Moriarty, well, too bad, but uh, the closest you can get is there. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm actually uh, watching the, the librarians of late, and uh, in season two... Uh, Due to, you know, magic, uh, Moriarty has been pulled out of the, a book, and he's just the most handsome guy you'll ever meet. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get a, uh, I had to get around to that. Yeah. It, it's kind of fun, you know. It's, you know, not entirely, you know, super deep uh, most of the time, but it's like, well, we're going to have a little adventure, and uh, I guess if you want to uh, avoid a, a, a massive... Uh, Modernish uh, um, uh, magic-based uh, uh, franchise because the author's kind of awful. This is maybe a good Sid. alternative, folks. Yeah, since they canceled Owl House. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, but you know, technically, the librarians is also over. So you know, it's yeah, everything's over. Yeah. Now, now I'm just thinking about all the. I was thinking through all of the, you know, Sherlock Holmes-style Moriarty adaptations, and now I just have cats stuck in my head. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> McCavity, the Napoleon ah, of crime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> McCavity, McCavity, McCavity's not there. <laughs> yeah, there's no one like McCavity. So uh, are we ever going to do uh, cats on this podcast? I, I know it's, it's, a little, it's a little outside of our wheelhouse, but, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it depends on how you interpret the ending. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll go with uh, that. The uh, the ending is uh, you know uh, it's actually just aliens. You know. Yeah, I mean that thing looks a bit like a flying saucer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're there's no way in hell if we ever do we're doing the damned uh, we're doing the damned nineties nineties uh, PBS version. I'm not watching that <laughs> that fucking new one. No. I, I rather enjoyed the uh, the 90s version there, and uh, I've avoided the uh, more recent adaptation. <laughs> I'd be fine with the horrifying visuals, but the fact that none of them can sing concerns me. <laughs> well, uh, maybe all these cats are, you know, more for screeching than actually meowing. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know. I'm not stalling on this one. I'm just scattered today. Anyway. Yeah, it uh, happens. <laughs> This episode was written by Brian Alden Lane, who's a playwright, screenwriter, novelist. If there's a way to put words on paper, he's done it. Excellent. Maybe someday I'll be like that. Mm -hmm. Attorney, uh, college professor. <laughs> <laughs> so but basically, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, this guy is the closest thing we got to uh, a real-life Buckaroo bonsai so far. <laughs> yes. Uh, wrote a lot of things for 80s television like Remington Steel and MacGyver. Uh, did two made-for-TV movies, Out of Time, uh, which is particularly relevant, and yeah. The Girl from Mars. 
Are you the girl from Mars? Out of Time is the movie I'm thinking about, right? Out of Time? Yeah, wait, yeah. this is this looks old. What's going on? Out of Time. 1988. Uh, the cop from the future goes back to the time of Los Angeles and teams up with the great grandfather to capture a master criminal. Yeah, see, mm. criminal stuff. Out of time travel criminals. Yes. There's a lot of those. Mm. Anyway, he also wrote a lot of nonfiction crime novels. So, Crime Dude. Yes, The Crime Man. So, if you, if you need a crime plot, go to this guy. Yeah, we've got more guest stars than usual because it's a whole uh, backlot episode. Mm-hmm. Except it's definitely in a set, but I don't. Yeah. It's a Victorian <laughs> set. Like, there's no sky in this world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, unless you count the uh, malfunctioning holodeck uh, grid, it's mm. a sky. <laughs> it works. As, it works. It looks very fake because you step into the holodeck and you're all of a sudden in a in a TV set. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. wow, oh, this works. <laughs> So Daniel Davis plays James Moriarty. He uh, has pretty big career-ish. Mm-hmm. He's probably best known for his role on uh, the soap opera Texas. Texas, um, which was you and, know, in 181 uh, episodes over two years or two or three years. And he was on The Nanny as yep. a butler. Yes, uh, um, he, he was kind of hilarious on that. He's the dead he band also star. also plays the captain of the Enterprise. Uh, for uh, I believe some sort of uh, Russian submarine movie, I think it was. Yeah, Hunt for Red October. <laughs> yes, the best Russian submarine movie. <laughs> don't don't besmirch. It's one of my favorite Russian submarine movies. Excellent. I, <laughs> how many are there? <laughs> I don't know. I will lose. That, okay, I guess there's not a lot of Russian ones. I watched that. I watched Hunt for Red October and got obsessed. I watched Das Boot with my dad a couple of times. But that's mm-hmm. German. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was uh, not Periscope Down, but uh, another sort of submarine movie parody movie uh, where <laughs> the uh, they faced off against the Pink November. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that one I hadn't seen. Yes. <laughs> I was obsessed with submarines as a kid. They are kind of awesome. <laughs> it's like a boat, but it's underwater. And then we've got Alan Sherman as Lestrade. Um, he's an actor and writer. Has a lot of uh, smaller roles in films like *The Incredible Shrinking Woman* <laughs> and *Escape from New York*. Oh, excellent. And uh, I, those uh, both technically are things we could cover in the future, maybe. <laughs> uh, he co-wrote the musical *Bloodshot Diamond*, which was adapted into something called *Bloodshot*, which he then starred in. Hmm. Yeah. No. He's been around. Yes, uh, also apparently does a lot of uh, voice work for things like uh, Guild Wars, Diablo, uh, and, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, it's probably uh, World of Warcraft, yeah. Uh, probably. One of those, yeah. <laughs> Sounds uh, likely. Uh, he was also uh, in uh, apparently three episodes of the High Fructose Adventures of Annoying Orange. Ugh. But also, you know, other random things, uh, like voiced uh, uh, some folks in uh, Where on Earth is Carmen San Diego back in the 90s. Oh, nice. I haven't seen that in a while. The new one's kind of taken over. Uh, now, let's see. Where was I? Right, we've got Biff Menard plays Ruffman, who doesn't have a big role, but I mention him because he also played Officer Michael Murphy in the 1990s Flash TV show, which like is one of my favorite superhero shows. I have the DVD set sitting next to me now, like on my on my TV table. 
Nice. It's way better than it's way better than the one they have now, and the fact that they keep bringing characters in from it is the only redeeming value of the new Flash show. <laughs> and also, this is the first appearance of Anne Elizabeth Ramsey as Ensign Clancy. She'll appear later in the Emissary. Um, she's best known for starring in Mad About You. Hmm. Wait, uh, which emissary? The start, the next gen emissary. Because right. <laughs> you know that, that's actually an important question. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole thing later, but you know, not yes. not now. <laughs> so, but you know, she shows up in a lot of other things. Uh, you know, uh, Dharma and Greg. Uh, you know, Critters Four, Man in the Family, Doctor Doctor. You know, just general sort of uh, guest uh, roles in a lot of things uh, on top of the Dynasty stuff. Oh, the Secret Life of the American Teenager in 43 episodes. Did they ever figure it out? Is that like a documentary? Uh, I, uh, Never seen it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so secret, no one watched it, apparently. <laughs> okay. Let's jump in, because I spent a long time, long time messing around in this one. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the Enterprise has a few days of downtime before they rendezvous with the USS Victory in a few, in a few days. Uh... That's always when they get into the most trouble. Yes. <laughs> what happens when the Enterprise crew has nothing to do? They cause trouble for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Data arrives in engineering, having received an urgent message from Geordi. He finds Geordi looking over a wooden ship model with miles of string and rigging. This is one of those like big ones with just ropes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sails, flags. It's the HMS Victory, which Doherty plans to give to the current Victory's captain because he served with him as an ensign. That's kind of a nice uh, deal there. Uh, you know, though, uh, you know, we are dealing with starships, so hopefully this thing doesn't get, like, knocked over the first time there's any sort of, you know, failure of the, uh, uh, you know, inertial dampeners or something like that. I know, and on old boats, they used to, like, stick stuff to the table. Yes. <laughs> this one's uh, just kind of... Set up in engineering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they talk for a bit about how humans have always wanted things they can't have, like the past. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I like not having dysentery personally, but. Now, what if you could have a, a, a wooden ship like that, but not dysentery at the same time? That could be fun. I do like wooden ships. Yeah, well, apparently there's actually like a um, uh, his National Historic Fleet in the uh, UK where they actually have wooden ships for you to look at so yeah they've got that <laughs> we have we have one in our harbor here in new york uh there's one permanently docked uh out in boston the mm -hmm. uh ironsides oh yeah uh in uh, san francisco there's a uh, submarine they can go in yeah i remember that i've been to that when i was a kid and obsessed with submarines there you go <laughs> it's all coming together folks so, uh, speaking of living in the past, Jordy called Data here to go play Sherlock Holmes in the holodeck. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, this is an urgent message, Data. We have to go play. Yeah. <laughs> so they arrive at the holodeck in full costume. They ask the computer to pick a Holmes story at random. They enter Holmes and Watson's room, where Data explains the significance of various objects and how they connect to Holmes's stories, plays the violin for a bit... Uh, Jordy does some writing in like Watson's style for fun, and mm -hmm. then Data announces they're going to have visitors just before a knock on the door. It's, you know, <laughs> home stuff. Yes, <laughs> I'm, oh. uh, 
I'm pretty sure that they got a lot of the trinkets out of order, story-wise, but, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, you know, the computer probably wants them to not necessarily know exactly uh, which story they're introducing themselves into here. Mm. But, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so, uh, Inspector Lestrade comes in with another man. Lestrade explains that this man's just been pickpocketed, the thieves made off with a photograph, Data rips open the man's coat, finding the photograph, and begins to explain that this man is an agent of the King of Bohemia, and that he intends to use the photograph as blackmail. Jordy gets frustrated and runs out, with Data following in confusion, because he doesn't know what he did wrong. Yeah, well, I guess there might be, he might just be confused about, uh, you know, the King of Bohemia bit there, because at this point in time, isn't, you know, Bohemia, a.k.a. modern Czechia, part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire? I was trying to remember if I wrote this down anywhere. So, like, yeah, there's that. But, <laughs> uh, you have some historical problems, but also um, the King of Bohemia is in, uh, is that a study in Scarlet with, with Irene Adler because you know she was dating him and they have embarrassing photographs together and he's about to be enter a political marriage and he's worried that she can use the photographs for blackmail mm -hmm. and he creates this whole ruse about having been pickpocketed to enlist homes which he sees through immediately and has to do the whole Irene Adler thing so this dude just bringing the photograph to the room makes no sense even within the story that they're referencing uh, i think uh so i, I don't I, know how data figured this out <laughs> uh data magic i guess or alternatively <laughs> the uh sherlock holmes of the star trek universe is different than the one that we know Slightly. it does seem like because <laughs> the, none of the stories line up they have the trinkets out of order I'm sorry, I was also a bit of a Holmes nerd growing up. <laughs> so they go to 10 forward. Jordy tries to explain that solving a mystery is part of the fun, and the jumping to the end just sort of, you know, isn't any, isn't any fun because you just have it memorized. But this does seem to be a problem if you're familiar with the stories and you're just doing the story as described in the holodeck, because then you're also not solving a mystery. You're just going along with the script. Yeah, you're just going through the motions. So Pulaski overhears and decides that she has to be a dick. As usual. For some reason, that's her whole character on this show. Uh, all right, Pulaski, what is it? Uh, she posits that Data is incapable of deductive reasoning because he can only solve things through memorization, which is pretty ridiculous because it's his literal job on the ship. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe Pulaski's under the impression that Data has just read everything that any Starfleet ship or any ship that they know about has ever done and thus just has all those answers indexed somehow, Yeah, I guess. Except <laughs> that the, the entire point of this flagship is that it's encountering all the things that no one's ever seen before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to seek out you know, new life and new civilizations, you know, that sort of thing. Data is a scientist. Deductive reasoning is his entire job. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, Jordy uh, goes, stop being a dick about this, essentially. Uh, they um, say that what if they got the computer to make an original story, and then Data wouldn't know the outcome, so they can test this. Pulaski thinks Data wouldn't stand a chance, so he accepts the challenge and invites Pulaski to come watch. 
They arrive at the holodeck, ask for an original story in the home style, and then take some time to explain to Pulaski so we get the concept nailed down again, I guess. So uh, uh, we got a, a, a new holodeck novel that is now being written by a chat AI. Great. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> Oh my god, we could do that. We could we could put it into the chat thingy and we could read it like it's new and then we could be like, none of what I just read was something I wrote. Like, you know, everyone's doing right yeah. now. <laughs> a little aside, I actually uh, had a little fun with the uh, chat AI uh, the other day where uh, I accused it of uh, uh, generating uh, false classified documentations of various <laughs> sorts and uh, tried to get it to admit to doing such. <laughs> It eventually broke down, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Need to reboot. <laughs> so as soon as they walk in, so they, they walk into the holodeck, they explain what a holodeck is, and then there's a running kid who Data thinks is just a ruse. So he runs over to just some random building. <laughs> All right. We're here. Then he announces that the man walking down the street was about to pull a bell, which he does not no would make a snake drop on him <laughs> uh pulaski calls fraud because this is just two home stories mashed together yeah <laughs> it's it's the guy from the red-headed league who's about to be murdered by the speckled band you yeah, know well, pulaski's not really impressed by all of this here and yeah. so it's like well let's uh it can can maybe we do something different here because this is a little pathetic Except she goes, this proves he can't reason. Except this is a failure on the part of the computer constructing a mystery rather mm -hmm. than Data not being able to do deductive reasoning. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, otherwise this is pretty impressive, honestly. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he's able to even notice that the plaque on the door lines up with the red-headed league and then infer that that means the bell cord is going to be connected to the speckled band isn't it is like pretty good on its own <laughs> it, it could have picked any two random Holmes stories maybe the guy was going to walk up to the red-headed league and get shot in the back of the head with an air rifle you know, <laughs> you, know you know or you know some uh non uh, uh you know uh, you know a murder method uh, or a murder method not actually used in the home story uh, before but would be fitting within the uh, the setting or something like that and then suddenly a giant glow-in-the-dark dog runs up <laughs> like well then <laughs> and accuses a man of stealing government secrets related to the navy Check his, uh, the computer is just very confused at this point. It's just ma randomly mixing. <laughs> Honest points. Like, name every story I reference in the comments. <laughs> so, uh, Jordy, frustrated with Pulaski for being a dick, uh, asks the computer to try again, this time telling it to make an opponent capable of defeating Data. This causes a power surge. Yes. Big enough that Worf notices. Yeah, but they're like, hey, there's a power surge. Eh. Yeah. All right, that's weird. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> I'll put it in uh, Jordy's you know to do list as far as checking on things. <laughs> so a man with a top hat and long hair watched the entire interaction. Apparently, before the request was made, just staring at them. Mm -hmm. So keeping uh, an eye on them. Some woman refers to him as Moriarty, so we know what's going on. And uh, then he sees the crew leave the holodeck. 
Dun dun dun. That was weird. He then asks for the holodeck to produce the arch, which uh, we haven't really seen as much before. It's the holodeck control circuitry thing. It's its control interface. So he asks for the arch and gets it. Yeah, the the uh, the sex worker that was kind of uh, talking to him was like, "Oh gosh, this is devil magic." So uh, they're all in the hol- they're all wandering on the holodeck, waiting for the mystery to begin. Day and Joy wander on ahead, wondering what to do when they hear a scream and run back to find Pulaski's gone. Hmm. Well, maybe we should have stuck together. Shoe no. left on the pavement. Yeah. <laughs> Never split the party, folks. <laughs> yep. Uh, Pulaski's been abducted. Jordy thinks she just ran off to mess with Data, but Data does some real Holmes deduction, which I be, by which I mean makes shit up. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good and seems convincing. <laughs> she was abducted by two men, one who's left-handed and works in a chemical laboratory that uses electricity, and one with a limp. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's some uh, scuffing on the pavement here that we're not going to look too closely at. Yeah, you know, etc. <laughs> he continues just to do random things. Uh, Pulaski's gagged, tied up, they can't hear her. There are two men, one of whom is being like kicked because his gate's uneven, etc. Weird home stuff. Yes. <laughs> uh, Lestrade grabs them. Uh, there's been a murder. Data says it's unimportant. Jordy tries to get to do some of his own deduction, like how the man was strangled from behind by a stranger, but Data contradicts him. He was recently out of prison and knew his attacker. It was the woman standing right there. We're done here. Yep. <laughs> yeah, was, uh, just his ex-wife, you know, angry that, you know, he might, like, try to, like, hurt her. So, you know. Moving well, it's on. It's <laughs> interesting that the computer's running a completely independent murder program, completely apart from the thing that they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's just distracting them. Yes. So at this point, it's, he's pretty well proven that he can deductive reason. And, but Pulaski's like, there we not go. there. He can do the home <laughs> thing. But Pulaski's not there to witness it, so it doesn't count. <laughs> so uh, they go into a door where they saw Moriarty go earlier, a man who clearly wants to be followed because he's being very obvious about stuff. <laughs> they find a warehouse that appears to be a dead end, except there's a hidden door that they also find from scratches on the floor, etc. Um, there they find a very comfortable sitting room where Moriarty is waiting for them. He's not revealing much at this point, but his mind is like clouded with weird images that he can't understand. And he knows that both of them are Holmes and Watson, but he also knows that they're not. They're weird people just dressed as Holmes and Watson. Hmm. Some sort of doppelgangers or uh, replicants. He shows them that he can get the arch, and he draws a picture for Data on a piece of paper that makes him immediately run out of the holodeck. He tries Hmm. to deactivate the program, but it won't shut down. And uh, in the corridor, Jordy demands to know what's going on, and Data hands him a piece of paper that has the drawing of the Enterprise on it. Dun dun dun! So, uh, should we uh, try to like uh, force the shut down? Like, just pull the plug on it? Uh, yeah, turn off the power. Ah. Apparently, if you mess with a holodeck while someone's inside, they die. So, so <laughs> um, well, it's Pulaski, so I, it is the party's healer. So, I, I guess you kind of. Make sure she survives. So they inform Picard in the observation room that they realize that Jordy asked the computer to make a villain that could defeat Data, not Holmes. Whoops. And defeating Data would require 
it's the thing to be conscious because mm-hmm. data is conscious and knowledge beyond the holodeck because that's what data has yes <laughs> yeah, it's a computer just meeting the parameters that uh jordy offered up and uh you know the computer doesn't know any better so you know garbage in intelligent life out yeah, it feels like you need to be really careful with these computer, modern computers. You mm-hmm. accidentally misspeak once and create life. <laughs> Though, uh, for this one, I might blame the Binars because they did a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, weird stuff when they were uh, doing their uh, their episode there. So uh, they might, you know, might have, in terms of, like, putting together the Minuet program, mm. uh, maybe left some code in there to help someone become more alive for you know some sort of explicit purpose and they just never stumbled across that bit of uh, <laughs> uh, protocol until this moment does make sense yeah this is very uh this is like very asimov the whole thing of computers get confused by the inadequ- inaccuracy of english because mm-hmm. you know that's the problem with natural language computing mm-hmm. is english is not a precise language <laughs> nope not at all <laughs> And uh, anyone who tries to argue otherwise is, is probably trying to sell you something. <laughs> <laughs> so the ship shakes, and the computer confirms that uh, altitude control has been transferred to the holodeck. Well, that's a little weird. Uh, computer, why'd you allow that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, Picard thinks it's about time for him to go meet this Moriarty. In Moriarty's office, he and Pulaski are having a bit of a chat. He keeps trying to ask her about future stuff. She keeps very badly pretending she doesn't know what's going on. I have no idea what you're talking about when you mention all this uh, space stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a lady here. Look at me. I'm pretty. <laughs> so he knows a lot of what's going on. They're on a ship. He knows there's something wrong with the world. He knows that none of this is supposed to be happening. Uh, or is it? Pulaski does admit that she's going to head back to the ship, and she asks Moriarty to join her, but he's not ready to leave yet. She's like, haha, I can murder this guy if I can get him to step out the yes. door. And, uh, and if I can, you know, just have him follow me out, he vanishes, and, you know, problem solved. So, you know. Picard shows up in his full Christmas Carol getup. Top hat and everything. Uh, Hink heads inside with Data, where they find a lucky coin, because people still know what that is. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Like we, we haven't used physical currency or currency at all for hundreds of years, but luck, luck. But, you know, in the future, they might still just, you know, randomly find loose changes lying around. So, you know, if you have like an old couch, she's like, what, what's, yeah. what is this? You, you put your hand between the cushions and pull out a coin and like, I'm in the future. I'm baffled by this strange artifact. Hey, it's an antique. <laughs> Uh, so after he finds the coin, he's immediately threatened with a knife, so it's not that lucky. Uh, Data just pinches the man's hand until he's in horrible pain and leaves. <laughs> Let me go, sir! You're gonna rip my arm off! <laughs> so Picard finds Moriarty and Pulaski, who are still having tea. Picard explains that as Data's opponent, Moriarty's purpose will be finished as soon as the story's done. Win or lose. So Data concedes that he's lost, and this does nothing. Hmm. Well, that's a little strange. Yeah. However, this all began. Moriarty says that he's now evolved beyond his original function. He knows he exists, and he wants to continue to exist. The problem is Picard can't do that. They don't know how to let holographic matter continue to exist. Well, uh, what if we uh, just left the uh, holodeck on twenty four seven and uh, you know just let him hang out here? That apparently is bad. Oh yeah, I guess for so. some undefined reason. 
Uh, well, maybe it's a matter of scheduling. There's other people that want to use the holodeck and don't necessarily want to get into uh, a weird Holmesian adventure or something like that. And you know, well, according they got, to yeah, <laughs> according to Voyager, it eventually just like leads to sentience anyway, and then yeah. <laughs> everyone thinks fairies are happening. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the moment there's, you know, any sort of uh, strange phase inversion of space going on around the ship, you know, they're uh, either going to have that happen faster or they're going to escape and chart, start murdering people or whatever. You know, some, something weird's going to go on and maybe it's, you know, good to just turn it off occasionally. So Moriarty believes this because people are telling him the truth finally. He returns control of the ship and places himself completely at their mercy. Picard decides that... Well, they don't know what they can do with hologram. They can save his program until they have some way for him to exist outside. So uh, they save it, the character, and into the program. Well, that seems reasonable. Uh, hopefully everything will uh, turn out well for uh, Moriarty in the future. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> so later, Georgie is a uh, little bit depressed about misspeaking to the computer and accidentally creating a life form that almost destroyed the ship. Uh, but Picard thinks it's fine. <laughs> Look at it this way, uh, Jordy. You're now a dad. And they both reminisce about how they like old Navy things. And then the victory arrives. And hooray! Uh, we, well, we've... This is what we were waiting yeah. for, you know? It's, it's done. Good job. <laughs> victory has literally arrived. That means the episode's over. <laughs> I think I talked before about the difference in this between uh, deductive reasoning and inference. I think you've uh, you know, you know, mentioned uh, some of the differences uh, previously, but uh, you know, feel free if you want to you know uh, talk about it again. I just think it's funny because because like the sh the home stories, everyone holds this up as like, oh, this is logical deduction, which is actual logic. You start yeah. with the with the facts, you work it out, you reach a logical conclusion that you can prove every step of the way is known. Mm -hmm. uh, most of what Sherlock Holmes stories do is inference. You see, you see a couple of things, you put them together in your head, you go, ha, ah, this must be what's happening. But you have no way to actually prove that is the thing that's happening or that is the only thing that could be happening based on the data you have. Yeah, you know, this seems like the reasonable thing for me to uh, get out of this, and uh, I'm just going to ignore the alternatives, and here we go. Now, I do think it's interesting because, like, deductive reasoning is, in fact, something that you would assume a computer would be able to do mm -hmm. like the it would be it would be really easy because yeah. <laughs> that's that's what computers do like, yeah, so you would assume that a complicated computer like data would be incredibly good at deductive reasoning mm -hmm. it would be interesting to say maybe he's not good at inference because that does take a leap of essentially non-logic to function it's the only way that a sentient being would be able to function in the world you cannot do this you'd never get enough information to make a correct decision all the time indeed yeah so you need to fill in some details and you know assume they are correct and you know for the time being until uh you run into evidence pointing you in another direction and then sometimes even people don't correct themselves even then so you know mm -hmm. but yeah that's the thing if yeah. it'd, it'd be more it'd be more not interesting, but it'd be more correct if Pulaski assumed that data couldn't uh, that data couldn't infer things because mm -hmm. you know it would be make more sense for her to be like he's a computer he can only do logic he can't make the like insane guesswork necessary to solve a mystery. 
Indeed, yeah. Which is really what she's, you know, critiquing, just using the wrong language for. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like, well, uh, you've uh, seen these elements in stories before, so you were able to make the correct, uh, you know, deduction, quite literally, because, you know, this means this in this story, and this other thing means this in this story. Combined together, they, you know, the... You know, the only uh, sort of solution is for this to be what's going on. While, you know, if, uh, you know, data was, you know, fully going full uh, uh, inferencing on, you know, it'd be very much a, all right, I've seen one of these elements and I don't know what the other one is, but I'm now going to jump and say, you know, given what my knowledge about the Holmesian sort of style is to fill in some details here and guess that, uh, you know, this particular uh, uh, means of murdering this person is going to be the uh, the rope or the, uh, the 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 air rifle or the glowing dog, and <laughs> and so uh, you know, but that's not quite what we get. At least not I that particular example. I can't remember if I mentioned this quote before, but I found this thing that was it's a Terry Pratchett quote from Feet of Clay about the Sherlock Holmes style of doing mysteries. It's one of his police officer characters talking about clues. Ah. Says he distrusted the kind of person who'd take one look at another man and say in a lordly voice to his companion, "Oh, my dear sir, I can tell you nothing except that he is a left-handed stonemason who spent some years in the merchant navy and has recently fallen on hard times." Then unroll <laughs> a lot of suspicious commentary about causes and stances and the state of the man's boots when exactly the same comments could apply to a man who was wearing his old clothes because he's been doing a spot of home bricklaying for a new barbecue pit and been tattooed once when he was drunk and 17 and in fact got seasick on wet pavement <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> you know uh, the uh, sometimes the uh, the alternative uh you know to the inference uh, conclusion is actually correct so you know mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah don't you know inferences are good starting places perhaps but don't rely on them for finding your end uh conclusions here or you know basic actual important uh decisions on sometimes mm -hmm. they may you know spur you to action that is going to lead you to a lot of trouble like you know you know, obviously this person knows everything about this because they have spoken to this other person and that other person for sure would have told them all of this information. And so I'm going to act as if this person, the first person is fully up to speed on everything going on. And thus I will not bother to tell them uh, thing one about what actually is going on because that would waste time. And now someone's lost when you ask them to do something and they're like, no, I don't want to do that because this, this sounds like a mad plan of yours. <laughs> And this is an interesting, the reason, one of the reasons that this works very well, like the Sherlock Holmes and Star Trek mashup that they do, mm -hmm. which they, they continue doing, Data's Holmes thing is, is very long running through the series, even without Moriarty showing up again. Yeah. And it creeps in here and it, there. It's kind of interesting to, to look at on this because it almost was an early form of science fiction. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very light, but when you're dealing with the victorian era the the time period at which arthur conan doyle was writing sherlock holmes finding fingerprints was like cutting edge technology yes <laughs> so uh if you get this a fingerprint what 
what can it tell you about the uh, the criminal? Well, it might be able to match it up to a specific criminal, but what can it tell us about them? Uh... So, like, the, the idea that this guy could gather enough information that he was able to solve crimes from evidence available at the scene was essentially science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, it still is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, CSI might uh, try to uh, suggest otherwise, but, you know... <laughs> Well, that's one of these things. Recently, we've been coming to terms with the fact that uh, most forensic science is pseudoscience bunk. Yeah, there are a, a few things that are quite workable, but a lot that is kind of like, well, this only kind of works if you make these certain assumptions about what's actually going on. And well, a lot of yeah. ones, <laughs> like even fingerprints. Like yes, most like everyone's fingerprint is theoretically unique. We haven't. You can't prove that because you can't take literally every person's mm-hmm. fingerprint throughout all of human history and compare them to each other but they're reasonably unique and we can demonstrate that but being able to reconstruct fingerprints and identify them in a database to match them up with anyone has been demonstrated to barely work yeah <laughs> so uh you took a fingerprint off this bullet that was deformed upon impact here and you claim that is now going to be the means for which you are linking back to this person from a partial fingerprint you got somewhere else? What? Yeah. <laughs> There's so much margin of error, sir. Most of the like fingerprint analysis is done by one person staring at a screen and doing a decent amount of guesswork. Mm-hmm. Like back and forth, back and forth. Uh, things look kind of the same, but I don't know. And that's probably one of the like most definite things that we're doing in forensic science. <laughs> like DNA evidence, that's pretty like you can take a thing and find DNA in it. But uh, we don't do that well most of the time. And all it demonstrates is that you found DNA. Yes. Now, I actually uh, have a friend who works in a uh, forensic lab. And uh, most of the time it's checking the DNA sort of stuff there. Uh, because, you know, that's one of the things they can actually do, you know, reliably <laughs> it's like all right uh, we've determined that it's a human well that's the first first step <laughs> we do have a particular problem that people have been talking about in our legal system that uh, even though people have been coming to terms with the fact that most of this stuff doesn't work scientifically doesn't necessarily prove things um, being accurate is not the judge of whether or not something's allowable as evidence to consider during a trial. The fact that it was at some point in the past, except in a different trial, is what makes it acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that we've accepted all of this stuff means that we accept it more later. Yeah, so, so it's a tradition of sorts of uh, precedent. So right now we're hitting a massive issue with uh, the way that we try to solve crimes is based on a lot of pseudoscience that people trust way too much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, also with uh, like things like you know DNA evidence, there's always the possibility that you know, the sample you've collected is there for a different reason than what you're assuming it is for, which is kind of getting back to that inference thing again, because you know it's like, well, this, this means that you were there. Well, maybe, or I touched you know, a, you know uh, this object which was then touched by somebody else which was then yeah they opened that door and that's why my you know a little bit of my dna is on that doorknob now Mm. now it doesn't necessarily mean i was actually physically there but uh yeah there's a lot of messiness there that is not 
being uh, rigorously sort of examined there. So you know what's really, really in right now that, that we could we could put in our in our SEO is is AI. Yeah. AI. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, we brought up a little bit during the synopsis there, but uh, you know, this is uh, very much a case of uh, a effectively a, a chatbot with computer control, aka the computer itself, trying to interpret what is being said and then generating an artificial intelligence as a result. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Should we b blame Dolly on this one or uh, GPT <laughs> or uh, one of the other ones? <laughs> well, I don't have enough to say about this one. You probably do, but like, so we we have this whole thing right now where AI is the new buzzword. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially it it's like blockchain you say ai next to something and all of a sudden people want to throw money at it yes <laughs> and um a lot of it mostly works it does do some impressive stuff it has very very limited applications and no one wants to admit that <laughs> true uh like my argument uh trying to convince it that it's committed crimes <laughs> mm -hmm. um but a lot of uh you know those sorts of ais are taking elements that are related to the prompts, uh, arranging them in a way that follows previously observed structures, and then outputting them to you. Uh, and to a degree, that whole system has gotten pretty good. They are not themselves intelligent, but they are very good at working the, uh, the, the, the system, the mathematical breakdown of the various elements and putting them together to generate a new, uh, you know, set of you know uh, materials that are reasonably similar to what would be expected given its interpretation of the prompts. Yeah, a lot of the like, a lot of the things that people are on about now, the chat bots and the things that can write for you and draw, like they're predictive algorithms that know what things usually go next to each other without any actual understanding of what those things are. Mm -hmm. So they'll you know, the be... The chat GPT thing everyone's using. It it knows what letter groups usually come after other letter groups. It doesn't have any understanding of what a letter is or a word. Yeah, it's uh, all being broken down into a specific mathematical um, interpretation of these elements and thus and then looking for the patterns in its database that best match this particular pattern structure mm -hmm. and then assembling them from there um, and I guess can it do a lot of things yes it definitely can is it is it necessarily good at some of those things it depends on what the thing is yes uh, so uh, I guess uh, you know just looking from a uh, you know another discord I'm in which has a, uh, a GPT uh, a chat bot in it. A, a friend of mine says, why does iTunes agreement uh, explicitly state that you're not allowed to use the software for manufacturing chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons? And the bot's uh, response is, the iTunes user agreement explicitly states that you're not allowed to use the software for manufacturing chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, aka restating the, uh, the, the prompt, in order to uphold international laws and agreements and to ensure the safety of all users of the software. The use of software for manufacturing chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons may, be may have catastrophic consequences and is thus strictly prohibited. That doesn't tell us anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just that doing this would be bad. <laughs> um, that was this very uh, 
but it but is sort of a, a reasonable sort of response to this sort of question to a certain degree. It's just not very deep at all. Well, I think the thing is that it's it's demonstrative of of kind of the point with these AI things that um, people are talking about how realistic they are and how you can't tell the difference between this and a person. And, oh my god! But <laughs> there was this there was this story they were running recently about how kids are using these to write papers in school mm -hmm. and everyone's like oh my god that's so awful you can't even tell the difference even the computer programs that people are designing to detect whether something is written by one of these things often can't tell the difference and what the example that they gave was write a however many word essay about the significance of the green light in the great gatsby <laughs> and then they had the thing to it and they read it, and it sounded like a bad middle school paper. So, yep. all right, good on it, fine. But that's a horrible question, as they <laughs> pointed out in the interview. That's not an interesting question. That's not a deep question. That's a question that gets you a boilerplate answer, which yep. is why the AI can write exactly the same thing that any bored middle school student would write. Exactly, and it's also maybe uh, a good motivation to get away from those kind of crap questions in the first place, that you know we sometimes run into in middle schools yeah. uh it's like yeah this is a, a straightforward sort of thing from the story so you know maybe we can go for something a little deeper meaningful when we're tr doing investigation here at all yeah. <laughs> the the great gatsby has themes of unrequited longing please explain your explain your relationship to longing using examples from your real life there you go yeah Oh, and uh, you might even get some uh, ideas about, you know, how did this uh, story make you feel and uh, why? Please critique the use of capitalism in The Great Gatsby. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the uh, the output for uh, uh, the, uh, you know, these sort of chatbots can be a little silly uh, if you have a very silly question. Uh, you know, the, the same person... Uh, also prompted a uh, it's the same AI to create a comprehensive list of every vaguely phallic ASCII character or character combo in existence, <laughs> and it gives uh, fifty uh, different ASCII combinations of uh, you know one or uh, I guess you know up to two uh, uh, different symbols, and none of them meet the criteria being asked for. <laughs> So, weirdly enough so so if it can't quite comprehend you know things like what the letters actually look like which it obviously can't then it's not going to be of much help in terms of uh generating useful information now the the particular problems that we're hitting with modern uses of ai the ones that we're doing that everyone's talking about now mm -hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of little problems two of the most uh useful to understand ones are they are being unethically trained mm -hmm. because the way that these things work is they take a lot of examples of whatever they're trying to do so like chat bt chat g whatever whatever well, now i'm messing i listened to yep. someone say it so many times in a video recently <laughs> that's lost all meaning yes <laughs> chat gpt like to write writes things so mm -hmm. in order for it to know how to write things you have to show it as many examples of written things as possible 
And what they've done with these things is they've just hooked them up to the internet and said, go nuts, scrub away. <laughs> Anything available the on the internet is fair game. If you can access it, it's yours. And they've done this with that. They've done this with the ones that can generate images. They've done some with like things that can do voices. And the problem is not every person who did the writing agreed to have their writing used for this. Exactly. Or have their art used for this or have their voice put into this thing to be emulated later. Kind of a jerk move. Then there's two things with the output side where some people are using these to emulate other people's work mm -hmm. and then claiming it is that. The voice actors have hit this. Some people are emulating a voice actor's performance to say basically anything and then they're using basically the reputation of that actor to sell whatever it is they're doing with the chatbot. Yeah, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is uh, totally them. Oh wait, I fooled you or alternatively... Yeah, this is totally them. Uh, can I get a uh, voice acting gig? <laughs> or they're saying, make me a piece of art in whoever's art style mm -hmm. instead of, you know, paying that person to make art, which is a thing that we already completely undervalue in society. Yeah. I know uh, far too many artists that are working basically commission to commission um, and some who uh, aren't even making it that well. Um, like... Now, uh, like my, my eldest sister is you know, technically a, a well-trained artist and, uh, you know, she's uh, sort of stuck, you know, uh, teaching in, uh, you know, a Florida school. Oh, no. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this, like, that side of things is inherently a labor issue. Mm -hmm. um, you, we, we are getting scared by this stuff because it's starting to hit up on jobs that we said could never be actually automated. Like before, it was like, oh, well, don't worry. It's only going to take manufacturing jobs. We, <laughs> well, we don't care if those people starve. And now we don't care if the uh, everyone else starves, too. Uh, I mean, we never cared if artists starved, but... Uh, but now we know. extra don't care. But it, now it's starting to automate the people who write news, and the people who write news are a little pissed about that, <laughs> and they're the ones who write the news. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, but uh, are any of them going to be uh, standing up and, uh, you know, like making uh, enough of a, a fuss and using the leverage they have to do much? Well, we'll see, I guess. Well, you, um, you hit a very obvious issue where, like, we, we in our modern American influence society believe that the only way a person is deserving of the things that they need to live is if they have a job, that if they're actively working. And mm -hmm. the more and more jobs that we automate away, you only have two choices. Either we say you're not allowed to automate the job, in which case someone's doing something that could be done easier, better, and more efficiently by a machine mm -hmm. for no reason. Or we say that uh, that person's job just didn't matter and now we need to make new ones, which will eventually also be automated and we just kick the can down the road. Indeed. And oh, also... If you're making up new jobs, obviously those weren't things that you really needed to do that much, were they? <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, well, we now have a, a, a greeter for the, uh, the front desk secretary who is only technically the front desk secretary because they only uh, forward you to the desks behind them. And that person uh, you know, will then actually handle all, all the, you know, the actual interactions. Mm. But, you know. <laughs> oh, darn. I don't have the story. My, my mother sent me this short story a while back 
there was a person goes into the future and he sees them manufacturing cars then taking those newly manufactured cars over to another facility where they disassemble the car into component pieces and then ship it back around. <laughs> and the Endless entire cycle. point of this chain is to just keep everyone involved in this process employed. Whew. <laughs> or, you know, we could just make sure people, you know, have enough money to live generally. That'd yeah, nice. we don't like that solution of we've automated everything to the point that our production is enhanced massively there's very few jobs that absolutely do need to be done by people largely in food production we underpay those to such a weird degree that it's endangering our food production chain mm -hmm. even though we're still manufacturing enough food for literally every person on the planet to eat everything they could ever want and then some yes hey uh, maybe we should uh, automate away ceos well this was something that I was this is something I was discussing with someone at some point that eventually they said that eventually we're going to hit a thing where everything at a company is automated except for the one guy whose job it is to be CEO and he just gets paid absurd bonuses because that's what we've used to represent how successful a company is. <laughs> so uh it's like well well what do you do when you go into work? Uh, I go into an empty building and uh, wander around for a while and then at the end of the day, I look at my bank account and it's bigger. So, I, I heck if I know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, at the end of the day, if the the AI trying to take over isn't even that that big of a problem, <laughs> the problem is that we're integrating AIs into systems. We're automating systems that that don't function in the first place, mm -hmm. and uh, then they're enshrined because we've automated them. Yes. And uh, even version two point won't help. I thought we were on 3.0 now. Oh, that's the internet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. AI 2.0. This time it is, I don't know, uh, insulting. The <laughs> directly. will not be automated. Oh, oh, it does remind me a little bit of uh, uh, from Babylon 5. Uh, they, uh, there's an episode where they reset the computer because they don't want people accessing it that they don't want to be accessing it. Uh, and... Uh, so the uh, the first part of the, uh, the reboot system uh, reactivates a bit of code that was had been turned off early in the station's uh, uh, you know uh, you know being uh, turned on effectively, uh, and that part is an AI that is just so annoying and is and like sarcastic and <laughs> you know and uh, you know the security chief's like yeah they turned it off like right away because nobody liked it and it's just kind of awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was actually a. Uh, voiced by Harlan Ellison, <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, well, that, that fits. You know, someone is kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, I guess there is a something else in AI uh, sort of uh, uh, nonsense. Is not just uh, school essays, but actual written stories are being submitted to publications uh, that are AI generated. And they're awful <laughs> because once again, you know, AIs are good at tossing things together that seem to fit, but they suck at like telling good stories or, uh, you know, having things like theme or tone really mm -hmm. work out real well. And so you get these sort of like, all right, so this is a passable 
series of events that happen in this story, I guess. But, you know, there's there's no there's no soul to it, I guess, is uh, one way to sort of explain it. Oh. Yeah, so uh, Clark's World uh, closed down their submissions because of this. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they're uh, trying to get that sorted out. And, you know, the, uh, I guess the rate of, like, you can never submit to us again has, like, you know, skyrocketed. Uh, because people just kept sending them, uh, you know, AI-generated crap, and they're like, "No, just no, stop it, go away." Ah, all right, nobody, nobody's free from sin for the time being. As the, I, my partner and I just love reading AI-generated stories from way back, the predictive ones, because they mm-hmm. get on such weird tangents and are hilarious. Yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're not good. Yeah, they're not good stories. They're 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 gem. The gem that is that that you can find in them is that they are so absurd, and that can be fun in moderation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're trying to write, say, a horror novel, then you want you know not to have the weird elements of suddenly this character comes out of nowhere and is like, I am now going to walk on the ceiling. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it's, like, just so frustrating. And uh, maybe that's why some of my submissions aren't going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, do you write too much like an AI? (laughs) Uh, No, just, you know, getting... uh, It was already hard being in the uh, the one of many, and now there's one of many squared. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you have to compete with actual computers for your writing gigs. It's frustrating. But, uh... Shall we uh, take a a quick detour? A quick detour? Yes. To Cartesian coordinates. Oh. Do you you understand the connection? Only sort of. (laughs) All right. So Cartesian coordinates uh, is a set of coordinates where you have an X and Y axis and sometimes a Z if you're going three dimensions. uh, And you can plot any point in space via referencing these three axes. And uh, this is you know, uh, relevant to our story uh, in part because, one, uh, you know, having court, uh, Cartesian coordinates is useful for, say, having a holiday because you now know where things are. Uh, also, uh, Cartesian uh, sort of uh, you know, coordinates and you know, related thinking was actually once like... Uh, uh, was it a, a band or, or some other thing here? Um, uh, so that the the uh, principal person writing on it had to actually leave the uh, the city of Utrecht and move to a different part of the Netherlands because they're like, yeah, I don't want to have to deal with this, and I'm I'm kind of an old guy at this point, and so you know, yeah, this kind of sucks. Um, but uh, the uh, so the uh, you know all all this kind of you know you know was kind of a big deal for this guy and he's like well i guess they don't aren't ready for like coordinate systems or something like that and you know this this, this fellow is a scientist who is all like i'm going to you know sort of try to connect uh geometry and mathematics together in order to like make science more like rigorous and stuff and so you're not just like i observe this and that is scientific no it's like i observe this and i could now you know use some of my knowledge of math and geometry to make some conclusions about the situation. I know that's kind of 
cool stuff there. And like Newton would later be like, oh yeah, I, this is, you know, the, uh, I've, you know, a couple generations of, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, philosophers and mathematicians later would be like, yeah, I'm going to use this in order to build some of my, you know, core uh, concepts of, you know, physics and mathematics and calculus and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, and other people, of course, but, uh, you know, this uh, Cartesian guy is like, you know, back then was like, all right, well, uh, well, there's other stuff I can also work on, you know, like philosophy and, you know, thinking about the you know, mind body duality and, and you know, but what about the, the you know, the, the, that specifically the body is like this thing and the mind's like this thing and they're kind of very different. Hmm. But I can, you know, my mind can experience the body being out there, but the mind itself what is it really about? How could it tell it exists? Well, maybe if it thinks, therefore it is, you know? Cognico ergo sum. You know who I'm talking about yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but does the audience, though? <laughs> <laughs> of, course I, I, of course I'm re- talking about uh, Rene Descartes. No, uh, Descartes walks into the bar. The bartender <laughs> says, would you like a drink? Descartes says, I think not, and vanishes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, uh, early uh, modern philosopher of 1596 to 1650, he lived, um, you know, French born uh, in a uh, city that would be later be named after him, I guess. Um, and uh, spent a lot of time in the Netherlands, uh, you know, being, you know, chased around occasionally by people that didn't like to work. Uh, <laughs> spent some time in Sweden in later life as well. Uh, and then he died. But he also did a lot of uh, stuff before then. Uh, including works on mathematics, philosophy. Uh, he was in the army for a little while in the, uh, in the Dutch uh, uh, States Army. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of, you know, seen as uh, one of the founders of modern philosophy. Uh, sort of, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we got a lot of like Greek stuff here, but maybe we should get away from their uh, certain perspectives there and see if we can come up with our own perspective that can tell us, you know, you know, that might work out better for, you know, investigating stuff generally. And so, yeah. Yeah, because the Greeks were weird about that. Yes. <laughs> and uh, up until this point, uh, you know, uh, most philosophers are like, yeah, well, if it's, uh, it's not uh, Aristotle, then it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the guy here. and Because uh, ah, Moriarty yeah. think, therefore he is. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, that will come up in the, in the next time he shows up. So, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I don't think uh, Descartes was uh, quite that uh, powerful of a thinker in, in terms of uh, manifesting himself in reality. Otherwise, he might still be here watching <laughs> us, listening to this very podcast because he, he will is. think. He didn't say I talk or touch or do anything else. Yeah. Hmm, that's true. Hmm. So there might be Descartes floating out in the ether somewhere, yeah, judging just us, sitting around thinking. Yeah, it's like, what, what would someone think about in that case? <laughs> I, I guess if someone's stuck in a endless void forever with you know weird uh, moments of uh, clarity and consciousness, you know that might might be some definition of hell. And uh, well, uh, hopefully no one else ends up in that situation. You know? Yeah, I know yeah. that would be bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll find out in a few years, I guess. Yes. 
Anyway, I think that's a lot of what we were going to talk about on things, and we're running over, so yep. it's probably time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Our various cadets have been racking up points here, and uh, since we're running a little on time, let's get right to it. The first prize is the Caring Antagonist Prize, which goes to Moriarty for being a gentleman about this whole kidnapping thing, allowing himself to be turned off in the hope that he can be a real boy someday. What does he win, Gapwin? Moriarty wins a holographic estate and some other stuff, because he's just this old gentleman thing. It wasn't good to have the class divisions, but we've really lost something in being able to shame people. It doesn't work <laughs> out well anymore. Even the villain had to be nice because, you know, you don't want to be dishonorable about it. We've lost something in today's society there. <laughs> a little class can go a long way in uh, terms of uh, making you uh, likable, even if you uh, are an odious person in some fashion. Hmm. Our second prize is the Deus Accident Prize, which goes to Jordy at the computer for accidentally creating a digital life form just so it could confound data. What do they win, Gapwin? Jordy wins a systems checker on these things. Like it could have, he should program a little thing. It's like warning: this may create in, in, warning. This may create intelligent life. Would you like to continue? You know, Jordy be like, mm, maybe not. Uh, Data might be like, that's fascinating. Uh, yes, I want to try this. Hmm. But then everything still goes 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 uh, horribly wrong at some point. Anyway. <laughs> Our final prize is the Hard Drive Brain Prize, which goes to Data for simply knowing too much when it comes to Sherlock Holmes stories, and thus frustrating Geordi, uh and, you know, Pulaski too, I guess, into the main plot. Uh, what does he win, Gepwin? He wins a predictive algorithm storytelling thing, because it's interesting that they didn't think the computer would be capable of doing that. <laughs> they thought the only thing a computer would be able to do would be to mash together different Holmes stories. Maybe, maybe there was another way. Anyway, that's all I got for uh, today, Gepwin. Uh, feel free to take us away, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us for... The Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Woo! Yeah. What, what else do we got going on here? I dumb and yep. i like somehow closed my my thing that told me what the next episode was well i, I recall <laughs> it's an episode that uh also features a little bit of holodeck time it uh, features lasers um it features um some uh, uh, a, a a comedian coming on the uh, the episode and uh, guest star and uh something about someone being outrageous all right yeah the outrageous sakana joy yeah it's i i like him it's a quaint episode i have to say (laughs) there are things that i really like about it other parts i'm like really yeah i mean well he he like uh he later like goes on to play um uh cliff seacord in the rocketeer which Mm -hmm. is a movie i always liked (laughs) So he's an interesting character. I don't hate Hakan as a character. They don't know what to do with him. Yeah. It's one of those weird, <laughs> weird guys that represents 
like shows you just how strange some of the stuff going on outside of the Federation is. <laughs> yes. It's like, yes, there are people outside the Federation and some of them are this guy. <laughs> uh, though, it, uh, as far as, uh, I guess, sort of how, uh, themes, it's an episode that is all about examining humor. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it's baffling. So I guess we'll uh, have that to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of about examining humor. It's also mostly a bad reek telling it from Romeo and Juliet. Yes. <laughs> what if uh, we told it from the uh, position of uh, like, a, like a carriage driver that is sort of observing some of the players involved here and just happens to be carrying an important person along? Yeah. <laughs> basically what if what if the monk who what if the monk framing device from Romeo and Juliet got arrested <laughs> let's find out <laughs> so anyway yeah and then of course he shows up again in prodigy in, uh, yeah prodigy I think he was like the DJ in lower decks at some point too huh <laughs> didn't notice that I don't one. think he, I don't think he had speaking lines at that point I can't remember but <laughs> That would be perhaps fit, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, next time, Rage of Sakana. So it's yep. a thing. <laughs> next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, this guy ain't worth mud. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware the next time you step off the transporter that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>